kami tidak akan menerima hasil penghitungan suara. Presidential candidate Prabowo Subianto and his political party Gurindra rejected the 2019 presidential election results. Yang dilakukan oleh KPU selama penghitungan tersebut bersumber pada kecurangan. Citing massive, structural, and systematic electoral fraud. These are the same claims that he made in the 2014 presidential election. How accurate were his accusations? Did any of this happen? Yeah, so uh, that did not happen in the presidential race, or uh, rather, there is no evidence that something like that happened in the presidential race, which makes me comfortable saying it didn't happen, not in the way that they're sort of implying. That's Seth Soderberg, a PhD candidate in political science at Harvard University and is a visiting fellow at Jakarta Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. Um, so this is where we have to kind of talk about what fraud is and how it's detected, but also sort of keep in mind that the accounts of people who lose the election are often motivated and um, incomplete. This is Indonesia In-Depth. I'm Sean Corrigan. And I'm Tanita. So the Prabowo campaign made this claim that, right, systematic, structured, and massive fraud occurred in the election. The reason they use that phrase is because that's the legal standard they have to meet, right? So that's not a phrase that they're using to simply describe what's going on. That's a phrase that they're using to meet a barrier to entry into the constitutional court. It's, it's, sorry, so that's why they're using those terms, and that's why we saw uh, Wiranto using them, uh, actually Megawati in using them in 2009. Right. So that's the minimum requirement that, to, have, to have your case heard by the constitutional court. Well, and that's the, in 2008, East Java gubernatorial election where there were, uh, where Kofifa claimed that she lost uh, an election through that, through structured systematic and massive fraud. Actually, the court, I don't think it was Kofifa's lawyers, I believe it was the court said, we've found, basically they've said in order to rule that something went wrong with an election and we need to rerun it, the fraud needs to be shown to be structured, systematic, and massive. And the reasons for that are that for the massive is important because they don't want the courts to become sort of a permanent avenue for everyone to say, well, I lost 300 votes in this polling station, so please rerun the election, right? The massive is really about the margin of victory. Structured is basically there to say, you have to show that it was more than an accident because, right, I mean, if you just think for a moment about the scale of the presidential election, we've got 823,000 polling places, and we imagine that 1% of polling places experience some kind of problem, then 8,230 polling places will have a problem. And uh, it's pretty straightforward to sort of make the claim like, oh, 8,230, that's so many. That's certainly, that's massive. Uh, the systematic part is there to basically say, we know that there is some error rate in vote counting. Like there just is. It, it cannot, you know, it, it is impossible to get a sort of a perfect process here because of logistics involved, because of the contingencies that occur, and also because there will be some bad actors. Uh, it would be naive, right, to 
assume that all election committee members at you know in the 800,000 places are acting in good faith. Most are, the vast majority are. 1% is enough to produce 8,000 flawed polling stations, right? So the structured part was added to basically say you need to show that it wasn't an accident. You need to show that people were engaging in a process to produce a fraudulent result. And one thing that's important here is uh, there are a lot of people in Indonesia who know how to stuff ballot boxes. Anyone who was a poll worker before 1998, so in 1997 or earlier, has seen it done. Like one thing that is unusual about Indonesian elections is just the number of people who actually know how to do this stuff. And that's also, I think, one reason why the court is comfortable with this standard. Like we know what it looks like. Anyone who, who you know, came of age before 1998 has seen a systematically, I won't say fraudulent, but just an election in which there's a systematic effort to change the count to produce a specific result. Would it still be considered fraud, I don't know, based on the academics mm -hmm. point of view or the law point of view, if they prove they have been able to prove that there has been some misconduct or like, um, what do you call that before, the tally? The mm -hmm. um, frauding tally count, yeah. but not necessarily change the result of the end result. Right. Is that is that possible? And is that what say the court would could accept? Because yeah. it seems to be it seems to me now that the court can only do so, can only grant that um, that there has has been a systematic and massive and widespread fraud if yeah. the margin tipped to the other right. side. This is like where like the legal and academic things diverge because the academics will be interested in like were people messing with the tallies regardless of whether it changed the outcome of the election. Um, we're all, we're, we are also interested in that. So for the study of fraud, all you need to, to show or all you're sort of looking for is people fiddling with the count on purpose, right? And that's sort of the key thing. Like it's maladministration or, or just mistakes if, uh, you know, something got messed up. So a good example of like something that's a kind of not harmless, but definitely not the same thing as like fraud is like there in 2014, there were like 2000 polling stations where the two candidates got exactly the same number of votes. It's more than you would expect. So a lot of there, there's a whole sort of world of tools for looking at the statistics of the election and figuring out if they were consistent with, we use the term data generating process in statistics. Like there's a data generating process that is a properly done election. And so it has known properties. If you look at graphs of the numbers, they look a certain way. And if the election is not administered that way, the graphs will look different. And that might be fraud, that might be special rules, that might be mistakes. But one of the funny things that comes up is too many polling stations with the, same num the exact same number of votes for both candidates. What probably happened in those places uh, because they're kind of randomly distributed. What almost certainly happened was there was some mistake and the committee came to an accord that the fair thing to do in light of their mistake is give equal votes to both candidates. Now, that's not neutral, actually, unless the election is perfectly equal, right? But that's probably also not... Like, like you can imagine... I can imagine a very sophisticated um, plan where you start doing that in, in, you get poll workers to do that in places where you have less support, right? But then you would start seeing it, right? It wouldn't be sort of randomly across the country. It would be like, oh, it's all in the same kinds of places, right? So, so that would be like a kind of, right, maladministration that you could detect uh, and that would sort of 
involve the tally, right? On the question of does it change the outcome, the the constitutional court has created like a series of, of barriers that basically say you need to show that the outcome would have changed. And that is common around the world, but a lot of places will also like allow, like if even if you can't prove for sure that the number of votes at stake would definitely, was like enough to change the outcome of the election, if it's close to that, or if there are signs of like something large happening, it's possible for challenges to go through. Um, but but the legal standards, the, the legal reasoning, you almost always have to show that it could have made a difference. And often all that means is like showing problems in enough polling stations that the outcome could change. Like it doesn't have to be, I mean, it de- kind of depends on how formal the court, like you can imagine a court that's really hostile to these claims that basically says, oh, you showed that it was in a thousand polling stations and the margin was, you know, 50,000 votes and there were 200,000 votes at stake in those polling stations, but you didn't show that those 50,000 votes were changed, right? That would be like a court that's determined never to to rule that an election was false. And I think there have been decisions like that here. Um, you can also imagine a court that says enough votes were at stake and were troubled by, you know, the quantity of polling stations that have problems that were ordering a revote. But those kind of balancing things are are the job of the court. Now, when we talk about fraud, it's important to define what is meant by the word. In this case, we're talking about something that is involved with the ballot count and has been tampered with. But Seth uses the term tally fraud to further specify when someone unauthorized has taken control of ballots. Now, he also stressed that this type of interference is very different than, say, um, inappropriate campaigning or campaign violations, which reminds us that Indonesia has one of the most restrictive campaign laws for a democracy, such as restrictions on where and when candidates may put up their campaign banner and posters. In a recent election, political party officials often used the word fraudulent when they were discussing campaign violations. And Seth says this is different. Here, he is talking about a fraudulent election, which is not the same as when mistakes were made by poll workers during the voting process of more than 800,000 polling stations. And of course, at such a huge scale, mistakes do happen. That actually gets into a little bit ways you can see whether something went wrong, which are closely related to ways you detect fraud. But one of the most common ways is to just check. Basically, you borrow techniques from forensic accounting and you say, do the numbers add up? Like, do they literally add up? Are there more voters? Are there more votes registered here than voters? Is it more than is plausible? Because Indonesian voting laws do make it possible actually for slightly more ballots to be cast at a polling station than the number of registered voters. You can actually theoretically have 102% turnout. And that's because there are uh, there's a system in place for provisional voting. So people who are 
living in a place and want to vote but are are not um, registered in that location or didn't meet the deadline for registration in the place where they're currently living, they can cast ballots in at least national elections. Depending on right where their ID card says, they might be able to also cast a ballot in a gubernatorial election. But the point is there are people, right, who show up at polling stations who weren't already on the list, and there are some provisions in place for them to cast a, a vote to accommodate the situation in which everyone registered shows up to vote and a few other people also are registered to vote, every polling station gets extra ballots. And in 2014, it was set at 102%. So there were 2% additional ballots. I think in 2019, it was the same standard, um, the same rule. So what you would look for, right, if there were problems or one, so one interesting thing that could occur here that actually isn't a sign that anything went wrong on its own is turnout above 100%, but below 102.1%, right? Uh, That can happen and it does, but it's not very common. As you would expect, like you'd expect that to maybe happen in a few polling stations. and it did in 2014. I don't know how many polling stations that happened in this. this yeah. How do you actually carry out electoral fraud or tally fraud, as Seth calls it? It turns out that manipulating the count itself is not the best option. There are problems with, uh, as happened in a lot of places uh, in the world. Uh, none of this should be considered to be unique to Indonesia. But if you want to engage in tally fraud, Right. If you want to get control of ballots that you're not supposed to have control over, right? Every individual is only supposed to have control over one ballot, right? You need a mechanism to get them. And the mechanisms boil down to maybe two or three. Uh, You need some way of getting extra ballots sent somewhere where they won't then be used by people. That's a big one. or you need like control over people who do the counting to get them to change counts after the ballots are cast. So when you're thinking about, well, how would you get a supply of ballots? Like like if the, the sort of perfect, the closest thing to the perfect fraud is where you actually are able to like punch the ballots yourself. Because if you fiddle with the tally and there's an audit or a recount, it might be possible to detect that the change happened, right? And that's also the case in just mistake Like if a mistake is made with tallying, then in a recount, when they go back over the ballots, they see like, oh yeah, um, a a number got written down wrong. That happens on a pretty regular basis um, and is pretty easy to detect because a lot of times when mistakes happen, they're very obvious. Like in 2014, there were like a thousand polling stations with like 10,000 votes for one or the other candidate in them. But most polling stations that year maxed out at 400 votes and what was going on is someone had written down an extra zero and it was very clear you could when when the c1 forms were online you could even see like oh yeah there's a blurry extra zero on this yeah the and this the c1 is the c1 form is the actual tally count of that of a poll yeah it's a polling station's uh tally count what about the accusations of uh manipulation of the voter list Mm -hmm. uh prabo mentions mentions that every every time uh, in, in court. Uh, yeah. Also, Megawati and Prabhu mentioned that in 2009. Yeah. Uh, Yusuf Kala, Wiranto did the same. What's the situation with the voter list? Is that an issue or are they just mentioning that to meet the requirement for the court? Probably, the court? This, is, this is a situation where I think there are some problems. The voter list is an Im- imperfect list. Um, no one who defends it makes the claim that there's ab- there are absolutely no mistakes on it. 
But um, the existence of mistakes is a very different thing from the existence of a structured conspiracy, right, to change the outcome of the election. So uh, a couple of things on that. When, when the court said structured, part of what structured means is like you can show that there was a hierarchy and people giving orders to other people to do these things. And um, with the voter list, uh, that is one of the places where the Proboa campaign has tried to say there was uh, a structure um, because they've, they've tried to make claims that either the KPU or the respective civil registries, the Duke Chap Bill, um, were somehow taking orders from the incumbent to alter the voter roll. So there's a couple of things that have been claimed about the voter roll. And before we get to the specific claims, it's worth noting, like, there certainly have been elections here where classic Illinois politics, such as the dead voting, have happened. Um, but based on all this information, I mean, how do you see the presidential election overall? Do yeah. you see it as... So, so this is where things get, like, in this election, the Proboa campaign repeatedly claimed there were serious problems with the voter list. And there was an accord reached at, at, at one point, I'm actually not sure what month it was, where the Provoa campaign sort of said, there, here are you know, a lot of names that shouldn't be on the list. Um, and the Joke Week campaign is also present. This is one of these things, right? Bo both campaigns are sort of brought in and they discuss, they bargain. Um, they found a lot of names they, did, they believe shouldn't be on the list. This is before the election. Before the election. And the voter list was reduced. And there was actually like a, an additional voter list in this election, the DPTB. So DPT is the final voter list. And then there was the DPTB, which was the, the Daftar Komilite like Tambahan, right? So the extra, the additional list. Yeah, the additional or the revised voter list. And that was smaller than the first voter list. There's a temporary voter list. Then there's a final voter list. And then this time there was one more. But after that accord was reached, uh, the Provoa campaign continued to say there were problems with the list. And the key claim, if you watch uh, TV One, uh, you might have gotten to see Fadlizon and Amin Reis talking about this with like a chalkboard. And both of these figures were important members of Provoa's campaign team. Um, there's a, they, they were on TV sort of saying uh, that there were tens of millions of names on the voter list that shouldn't be there. The basis of that claim was kind of interesting. Uh, they had a copy of the voter list because the voter list is a thing that the, you can get from the KPU. It is public information. The list of, my gosh, it's like, what, 170 or 190 or something million names. While scrutinizing the Indonesian voter list a year before the 2019 election, Seth came across some odd findings. The most important claim after the the discussions that led to the revised voter list where they got a lot of names off that probably were like deceased people, people who'd moved. Because like anyone who doesn't like notify the civil registry or any civil registry office that's moving slow um, is going to like produce names on the initial lists that aren't supposed to be there because it's there's just lag, right? Um, but the Proboa campaign's key claim was that um, too many people had birth dates on December 31st, January 1st, 
and July 1st. I think those were the three dates. So basically, if you look at the birth dates in the voter file, and I actually had done this with the, the Pilgada voter file, too many people are born in July, according to like the, the year of birth, or the month of birth. Too many people are born in the month of July. And uh, I remember seeing this last year and being like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Um, for a while, I thought that maybe people were like taking their kids' KPUs out in July to get them into school or something. Yeah, that does happen, yeah. Uh, right, which it's like, oh, okay, like people are entering the system in the month of July. But then it turns out that almost all of them have the same birth date, uh, which is, which actually, there are three different dates that pop up way, way too, more too than often. you would predict, yeah. uh, according to like an actuarial table. So an important fact about the claims made by the proposal campaign before the court case and during, they said that... Um, birth month and birth date should be uniformly distributed. In other words, people should have roughly equal probability of being born on a given day. That is not true. Like that's just, that's a, it's a well-known fact of, among demographers that um, birth date data is weird. And like people are generally not born on weekends because births are generally not induced on weekends. Things like that happen. There are important shifts around holidays. I think Indonesians know that nine months after Lebaran, a lot of people are born. So you can kind of see these like cycles following Lebaran. Um, so it's not true that like there should be equal numbers of births in every month. There are cycles to this, but it is weird, right? That a lot of people were born on, I think it was July 1st. Uh, and December 31st. Well, it turns out that there is a procedure that the Duke Chapil uses for if someone enters the system with no birth record. So, and, and the statute on that, I think, has been changed twice. So depending on where you are, what, what years you're looking at, birth years you're looking at in the data set, you'll see a different day. Um, so at one point it was in December, and then later it was in July, and I think they moved it. I think it was at one point July 15th, and then it was July 1st, or the other way around. But basically the point is, if your birth year or your birth date rather is lost in the system, there is a statutory day that you get. And so a weird thing about the record keeping here, but this isn't, I mean, it's not weird. It's just sort of a quirk of the record keeping is people whose birth date is like July 15th in the civil registry. That might mean they were born on July 15th, but it's more likely that it means their birth date was lost for some reason. And if you start thinking about in a country like Indonesia, where the civil registry system went electronic only in the mid 2000s, uh, and even that process isn't finished, um, not like not some of the older stuff isn't completely entered, the ways of your birth year getting lost or your birth date getting lost are pretty like myriad. Like it could be a person loses their birth certificate. Mm -hmm. It could be a Duke Chapel office burned down, right? It could be that something got flooded, yeah, flooded and yeah. lost, right? So there were these claims that the Brewer campaign were making that like tens of millions, I want to say, I can't remember how far it got, but depending on sort of which slideshow you looked at, they would have several million people, they would say have birth dates on the same day. This is proof of fraud. So this is the sort of important leap that they make. They say, isn't this number weird? It must be a conspiracy to produce a fraudulent election result, which is quite a leap to make, right? Because if you look at it, as I did, even before the claims were being made, I was like, why? <laughs> That's a lot of July births there. Well, it turns out there's a very good reason, especially for older people, to have 
birth dates in July that have nothing to do with when they were actually born, right? And then, you know, to sort of sh to prove that like there were, uh, there was like a large scale conspiracy going on because that's what they were claiming, you'd need to show that like those births or those recorded births were happening in places that, right, were more likely to support Joker or something like that. You, you need to then, it's not enough to show that like there's something odd in the voter list uh, to then prove that fraud occurred. You need to show a connection between the thing you've identified in the list that might be an error, that might be deliberate, and the outcome uh, you're saying happened. those circumstances and the high level of transparency uh, in the voting process, Yeah. why do all the presidential candidates since 2004 yeah. uh, always take their losses to the constitutional court? Every single one has, has yeah. done that um, since 2004. And, and also in this case in 2019, yeah. of course they have to use the terminology systematic, structured, structured, massive, uh, massive uh, yeah. electoral fraud. Uh, but why why did they do that? Are they sore losers? Do they actually believe that? Yeah. Uh, what, what's the reasoning behind that? Do you think? I think there are there are kind of three things. One is like it's justiciable in in Indonesia in a way that in other countries it's it's harder. Um, in Indonesia, it's both easy and hard to bring an electoral fraud claim. And what I mean by that is. Like if you make a claim, if you're disputing the result of an election, you get an automatic in at the at the constitutional court. Now, recently they've said in non-presidential elections, only if the margin is less than 3%. And that's because they were getting too many cases. Uh, I think it's very fair to say that um, sore loserness is really a really big part of the story. But if you look around the world, losing candidates bring lawsuits all the time it happens and, and and it happens for different reasons right it, it, sometimes it happens because they're they are sore losers and sometimes it happens because things really did go wrong um but here so there's kind of a, a straightforward path because the law says the constitutional court hears disputed elections and the constitutional court ultimately is the one that rules on who wins right they, they're sort of the last step right the kapayu says the result of the count, the decision of the KPU is this person got more votes, and then the constitutional court has to sign off on that. So that's why the constitutional court is involved so immediately in this process. In a country like Brazil, there's a special electoral court, and their whole job is to hear people say, I lost because they stole it from me. Uh, and sometimes that is what happened. Um, so sore loserdom is part of it. Salah input data ya dikoreksi. Stop. Tidak jujur dan tidak adil dan tidak bersih. Hati-hati dengan kecurangan. It takes a lot of work to manipulate millions of votes in favor of a candidate. Clues or evidence will be left behind in the process and likely found later. But in closer elections, as you can expect, 
there are less votes that need to be manipulated, making it more difficult to identify. The 2019 presidential election was a rematch from 2014, with Widodo and Prabowo running for the top seat. Widodo easily beat Prabowo in 2019 by receiving around 16 million more votes. However, the 2014 election was much closer, around 8.5 million votes between the two. I think you can tell I've been somewhat dismissive of the presidential claims. So on the presidential case, like part of why I'm less sympathetic to the claims, right, is like, except for 2014, these weren't close elections. Um, you don't steal 15 million votes without leaving footprints. Like you just cannot do it. Famous examples of stolen elections or probably stolen elections in other parts of the world. There's an election in Mexico, I think it was in 1994, where the PRI, that was the party that ran Mexico for most of its history and uh, briefly again recently, um, the polls close, election results start coming in and the TV is like, oh, the PRI is actually kind of behind. Power goes out and then the TV stations, right? For about two hours, and then when they come back online, they're like, well, we, we'd like to announce that like, actually now the PRI is, is winning, right? That's a famous example of an election that was, we know actually that, that there, were, there were things going on in that election because there, there, was, there was some public opinion polling that was happening that was showing the PRI was in terrible shape. It was like, uh, it, when, when they let people answer anonymously, uh, when, when they told the pollsters directly, you know, who are you going to vote for? They're like, oh, I'm going to vote for the pre, but then we give them like an envelope and say like, well, choose the thing and then give it to us. We, we can't read it. Looked really different, right? So you can kind of know in advance if an election is close, if something's going on. Um, there are these kind of ham-handed things that sometimes countries have to do if they're about to lose elections. Um, in, in, in Istanbul recently, right, the... Um, AKP lost the mayoral election really in a really close race. So a court just happened to cancel the result and order a re-vote, which then the AKP lost by a lot because people were mad about that. So like when things are going in a authoritarian or fraudulent direction, you generally can tell. In Georgia, in the United States, right? Recently, there was a gubernatorial election in which the Secretary of State of Georgia was running against a, a, a Democratic Party challenger. The Secretary of State is the person who maintains the voter roll, right, and who chooses where polling stations will happen. And he, as Secretary of State, closed polling stations in Democratic-leaning districts. He removed tens of thousands of people from the voter rolls. I mean, that's the sort of thing that goes on in the run-up to an election that's really troubled. Um, the margin in this presidential election was, was large. And the margin in 2009 was really large. In 2014, it was closer, right? Um, and when it's close, that's when you need to start sort of looking at that thing I was talking about earlier of like, there are these footprints in the, in the statistics of the election that tell you if something went wrong. So like, when I looked at the 2014 results, I was very interested in, well, was is there evidence of fraud in the presidential election, right? And the first thing I noticed was uh, one of the classic techniques is you take all of the polling stations results. I think I mentioned this before. You look only at the last digit. So if, if um, 300 votes are cast at a polling station, uh, 111 for one candidate, right, and 189 for the other candidate, the last digits are one and nine, 
111, 189, 1 and 9, right? Those digits should be, as long as the polling stations have enough votes on average, and enough is like more than 50, uh, those digits should be uniformly distributed, which means there should be the same number of zeros as ones, as twos, as threes, as fours, as fives, as six, as sevens. Like, so if you, if you graph them, you make like a bar chart, the height for the zero and the height for the nine and the height for the five are like roughly the same. That's like something that should happen if an election was conducted properly, right? So if you do that for the 2014 election, there are too many zeros, like way too many. There are like 15% more zeros than there are other numbers. And that shouldn't happen. So I like did this and was super excited. I was like, my God, I've discovered some kind of massive fraudulent or, 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 or mistake or something, something wild has happened. This is for the 2014, 2014 election. presidential election. Presidential election. Yeah. Okay. I do this. And then I, uh, I, it was actually pretty embarrassing the way this all shook out. I like discovered, uh, you know, I was like, okay, where are they? Well, Papua, they're all coming from Papua province. A few from West Papua province as well. And I was like, oh my God, there's some kind of conspiracy maybe going on in Papua. It's like some of the districts, all the votes went to Proboa. And in some of the districts, all the votes went to Jokui. And I was like, so, so that was the other thing I sort of observed. The zeros were all coming from places where every vote went to one candidate. So the zero was being generated because the vote total for the other candidate was zero. It wasn't coming from like 150s, 160, right? Those zeros, it was coming from zero. So I got really excited. I went to the American Political Science Association conference. I presented this. I was like, something crazy is happening, mostly in Papua. And uh, a, a very smart Australian political scientist happened to be there. I didn't recognize who it was. His name's Ed Aspinall. He's a well-known <laughs> author on-, on Absolutely. Theory. I didn't know what he looked like, yeah, luckily, yeah. or I would have been a little more nervous in my presentation. He says, oh, this is very interesting, very clever. I think you've discovered the Noken system. And I- What's the Noken system? Well, <laughs> that's what I, I was like, oh, let me, I don't know what he's talking about. This is, you know, six years ago. I didn't know anything really. And I'm kind of like, you said Noken, but like, what is that? Well, Noken is a system where certain DESA in Papua are allowed to engage in communal voting. And the Supreme Court has ruled uh, that this yeah. is possible. Um, so in a Noken village, all the votes will go to one candidate and zero votes will go to the other candidate. And I had basically reverse engineered you know, a lot of all that work just <laughs> well. And so so here there's there's some really interesting things that came out of that for me. One is I needed to learn more about Indonesian elections. But another thing is this these kinds of techniques are called election forensics. They work because they're designed to detect things that deviate from the normal voting process. Noken absolutely deviates from a normal voting process. It is not the same thing as a regular election as we understand it. And this system performed brilliantly at identifying places where the Noken was in use. Yeah, so you still could identify it. Um, are there any other areas that have this unique voting process that well, or some, that's authorized to have this so unique process? Some areas of Nias have been authorized to use it, but um, they don't really, they didn't, like, I don't think they did. But there are some places in Nias for some reason that the court also ruled could do it if they wanted to. Because um, there was a court case, some, uh, it was Papuans, saying we'd like to have the same voting rights as everyone else. And the court ruled that 
Papuan culture is special. The court often has done this sort of thing with, when cases have been brought from Papua. They've said Papuan culture is communal, and so this is okay. They didn't create any procedures for determining who in the village will, which holder of traditional authority will be allowed to cast the votes on behalf of everyone. So it's been a continuing source of conflict. But so one interesting sort of note on that is people in the Noken village, they have said only places that are using the system or were using the system when the case was brought. I think the case was brought in 2015. I think it was brought after the presidential election. Um, only places that were using that system can continue to use the system. But people in those villages do not have an individual right to vote. Is Interesting. Yeah. And um, so so it's a sort of interesting, the, the court has basically ruled that uh, people in certain villages in Papua don't have an individual right to vote. Let me just say one more one more thing about the president, sort of the last follow-up on that, that forensic stuff, which is when, when I took out Papua or when I looked at just instead of taking out Papua, I just looked at places where both candidates got at least one vote, right? There was nothing weird going on with the numbers. Like as soon as you removed communal voting villages, either by just saying, let's not look at the ones where someone got zero, or let's cut out Papua or these parts of Papua where they'll do it, then there's no weirdness in the election, other than like slightly too many places with exactly the same number of votes for both candidates. And if I recall correctly, during the court case uh, that Prabowo and his legal team brought to the Constitutional Court yeah. in the hearing itself, I think this was raised. Yes, that it they're was. saying, you know, how, how could this massive coalition, which Prabowo did have at the time in 2014, yeah. how could they not receive a single vote? Yeah. And I mean, am I wrong? I mean, did they present this? Did, oh, they did, did. Did they not know about this? Um, they they no did, can? and they knew about it. And so actually, they, they challenged the results, I think, in four It'll take me a minute to bring it up, but I, I have something on this in my uh, manipulation chapter. They, they, they said four Kabupaten, or f well, four places. Two of them, I think, were pro whole provinces, and two of them were like like Kabupaten or, or regions. They said that Madura, Nias, Selatan, I think it wasn't all of Nias, and then Papua, and maybe West Papua, like had problems. And the Madura one was interesting to me because Madura always comes up. Madura is the source of that structured, systematic, and massive standard. The Kofifa case in 2008, they ordered a, a revote in Madura, in the three Kabupaten of Madura. But also, it was interesting in the 2014 cases, Madura is a place where Prabowo did very well. And they were saying that there, there, was, there was fraud there, um, which seems like a sort of dangerous play to me. Like, like let's say that the court ordered extra scrutiny of the election an election where they did pretty well. May, I, clearly they thought that they shouldn't have gotten, they should have gotten a, an even larger total than they did, but they did very well in Madura. But they did they did raise these, the, the Papua places. Um, of course, there were lots of Desa in Papua where Prabowo got all the votes, uh, mm -hmm. but it was about twice as many. Uh, Jokowi, there were about twice as many Desa where Jokowi got all the votes. Um, Interesting. And I think that shouldn't be surprising. We know that non-Muslims preferred Jokowi overwhelmingly and did in both elections. And I think that's a big part of what was going on there. But the point of this is basically the presidential election is, you know, we know from other countries, countries like uh, Nigeria has been studied really carefully. Um, Russia has been studied a lot. There are all these statistical footprints that are left behind that are the result of the structure and the system that is are being used to, to change an election result on a large scale. And um, none of those are present in Indonesian elections, in the presidential elections.
yang mengumumkan hasil perhitungan resmi yang dipakai untuk menentukan angkanya menang dan kalah itu adalah KPU. Lembaga resminya jelas KPU. 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 The General Elections Commission, or KPU, was established in 1999 in the early days of the reform period. It was given a nearly impossible task to conduct free and fair national elections less than a year after President Suharto's 32-year rule and where election results were managed and far from free and fair. The KPU did the best they could, given the enormous time constraints and resources provided, but Many experts stated that although there had been shortcomings, they didn't appear to have a major impact on the election results. The KPU went on to carry out Indonesia's first direct elections in 2004 and additional national elections in 2009 and 2014. Conducting national elections in Indonesia is not an easy task due to the size of the electorate, but also due to the logistical challenges of reaching many voters in remote areas. Overall, the KPU has quietly won praise, but it is often overlooked and underappreciated. I've always been impressed with the performance of the KPU. I think there are a lot of people who operate from the framework of sort of like, we can identify a problem and it needs to be fixed now, and until it's fixed, the election is broken. And um, I think that's not a framework that you know, adequately respects the challenges that the, the KPU faces in trying to conduct a hand count election uh, over 800,000 polling places in one day. They have a pretty high commitment to integrity. Um, they're fairly decentralized, both because now, since 1999, they've had to be, the law just requires them to be, but also because that's how you can conduct an election of this magnitude. So there are always examples of there are hundreds of examples in every election of local election commissioners engaging in some kind of conduct that's not appropriate. Sometimes that's misconduct, sometimes that's mistakes. And uh, you can go through, and I've, I've done this for 2014, but not for the latest election, you can go through the various oversight bodies. There's the Bawaslu, which is an increasingly powerful and important uh, oversight body. There's also something called the DKPP, which is the Honor Commission of the election administration. That's a not a great translation of it, but they are the people who are responsible for disciplining election commission or Bawaslu, so election oversight commission members who engage in misconduct. Uh, and then there are the ordinary courts, which handle certain kinds of disputes that arise. Well, it's not, it's the ordinary um, state affairs courts because Indonesia has a civil law system and there is such a thing as a as a state affairs court, which is baffling to an American like me, but very normal elsewhere in the world. Um, and then there's also the constitutional court. So there are a lot of different bodies involved in election oversight. There's really one that's doing most of the work of election administration. And um, I think the, the, the KPU does in general a good job. Uh, and part of the reason we're aware of the hundreds, potentially even thousands of cases of things going wrong is both because the media is free and able to 
do their oversight function and identify problems, but also because the KPU is pretty good about transparency and, and the commission system they have set up where local commissioners are these independent uh, people usually drawn from either local legal circles or local advocacy circles and are separate from the bureaucrats who do a lot of the management means that it's fairly straightforward if even one commissioner thinks something is wrong. And when I say commissioner, I'm, I usually mean someone like at a Kabupaten level. There are commissions at in every Kabupaten. If even one commissioner thinks something is wrong, they have a lot of avenues for um, raising those concerns within the KPU, with the media. I mean, generally, KPU commissioners are taken quite seriously or with now the Bawaslu or the DKPP. Generally, when things go to court, it's because a candidate is upset with the KPU. Now, in the legislative races, things get kind of interesting because two things are kind of going on that um, make it more likely that there will be problems with fraud. So, so when you think about ways of winning elections, right, ways of getting the count to say that you got more votes than someone else, there's the way you're supposed to do it, which is convince people to vote for you and not for the other person. Um, but if you think about, like, let's say you're going to do tally fraud right in across 800,000 polling stations the logistics of actually doing that are not simple just as like the logistics of campaigning across the archipelago are intensive they're expensive right the logistics of getting enough people to be sort of co-conspirators in a systematic attempt to change the results they are far from trivial i mean that's why golkar that's a big part of what golkar's work in the suharto era was Right, it is not easy to produce the, as as Benedict Anderson, the plausible two thirds majority. Right, you need lots of people doing a lot of lots work, of yeah. work. Right, so it's not like you can just like have someone in Jakarta change a number. Um, that doesn't cut it, uh, because there's so much oversight. Uh, lots of people would notice, and 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 of course, that, that's before you get into like the fact that a lot of people in the election administration have integrity. So the logistics are hard in the presidential race. And if you think about like, what would it actually take to steal 15 million votes? That's all, that's not easy. I mean, if you really think about like getting ballots that would reflect, right? That it's almost as much work as just doing yeah, the campaign. Yeah. Now in a legislative race, margins can be a lot smaller. And this is an important finding from the study of electoral fraud is that the smaller the margin, the more likely it is to occur. And that actually, if you sort of think about it in a classic like incentives framework, you know, what you're worried about when you engage in fraud or manipulation or you subvert the process in some way is you're worried that you'll get caught and you'll get in trouble, right? What you're hoping to gain is, is the office you're campaigning for. And the larger the number of votes that you have to acquire this way, the more likely you are to be caught and the more expensive it is, right? The, the cost starts to not make sense, right? But in a DPRD2 race, lots of people are winning over their nearest rival. Deep, sorry, DPR2 is the local legislature. That's, yeah, that's level? the district or Kabupaten uh, legislature. 
or assembly, we'd probably call it an assembly, um, you're winning over your rival by a few hundred or a few thousand votes. And remember like your nearest rival, your biggest uh, competition, right, is the next best person in your own party or the next better person in your own party. So the gap between like the first place and second place candidate in most districts, in most parties is pretty big, but between the second and the third, it's not so big. And so there are lots of people sitting in the more local legislatures who won their seat with just a few hundred more votes than someone else. And a few hundred votes is two or three polling stations. So suddenly you can kind of see that like the payoff to getting a couple of polling stations to kind of swing a few votes your way is really big. It's like the difference between a seat in the assembly and no seat in the assembly. And the odds of getting caught are actually smaller because we're talking about two polling stations, three polling stations. And it might not happen at a polling station. So, 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 but I just want to sort of lay out, right? Like the presidential level, doing the fraud is a massive undertaking, very literally massive undertaking. And it's one reason to doubt that it occurred in that way, right? There are people who say, well, something about the campaigning was illegitimate, right? Or this, the, the state apparatus was used inappropriately. But that's a little different from was there were there 15 million stolen ballots, right? Those are not the same claim. In the legislature, yeah, like the payoffs are huge. So is the legislative election free and fair? Is, uh, is I it would, transparent? I, I How would, would you categorize it? That's a good, so I would actually call it free, fair, and transparent because I mean something kind of specific, like does the CAPEU have appropriate rules and does it follow them? And are most people who should be able to vote able to vote? Yes, there is this serious problem of intra-party vote transfer. For the legislative election, political parties don't nominate a single candidate. Rather, the party will have multiple candidates running for a seat. Voters may choose either the party or a specific candidate. This means that candidates aren't just competing with other candidates from other parties, but are actually competing with other candidates from their own party as well. And, and then the other thing is like so many candidates repeat a similar story about some kind of uh, tally fraud that occurred. And basically what they regularly say, I've talked with a lot of different candidates who talk about this. The book that Ed Aspinall and Mada Sukmajethi edited that kind of goes through 34 races, one race in each province, talks about this losing candidates frequently say that votes were moved from one candidate in their party to another. Um, and that, when that occurs, generally involves not CAPEU commissioners, but like below that, the, the, the volunteer vote counters or, or vote counting committee members at like the sub-district level or in the polling station. One of the main costs of running for office here is paying witnesses to sit at polling stations and make sure that your votes are counted for you. If there's a polling station you couldn't afford to send witnesses to, there's a decent chance you didn't get any votes in that polling station. I mean, there's a decent chance you got a few votes at that polling station, but they were registered maybe to someone else in your party. And that's really important. It's because of that proportional system where the seats go to the parties, but then within the party, they go to the candidates in the order of votes they get. There's not a lot of evidence of votes being moved from one party to another. If it's cross party, you can take it to court. Um, it's really hard to take to bring to court an intra-party claim. 
Um, so this is like an almost universal story from losing candidates, but there's a lot of evidence that this is going on. I mean, winning candidates just don't like to talk about it because presumably like because there's a good you know because like why would you because they won <laughs> right they won but also maybe this was part of how they won so of course yeah. they don't want to talk about it prabo and the garinja party rejected the 2019 presidential election results citing mass electoral fraud as we mentioned however the party did not contest the legislative election results in the constitutional court and they gave mixed messages as to why they believe that the electoral fraud occurred merely in the presidential election, but not the other races. I think they, they did that because um, they they were sort of moderately satisfied with an election result that, that put them in third place, and they didn't see any gain from making the claim. Um, but they're hitched to the Proboa campaign wagon, and the Proboa campaign made a claim about the presidential election, and they, you know, they, I don't think that, that the Grinder party is free to break with the president on a claim like that. I think Indonesian elections are quite well run. There's not really evidence of large-scale problems or even small-scale really problems with the presidential race there are certainly challenges that come from the scale logistical scale and there have been some really good reform suggestions that basically take into account the fact that like this is a hand count system maybe they should separate the local elections from the national elections and just have them on different days so that the poll workers don't have to work as hard i think that's a, a good idea but in general, you know, the counts are decent. Uh, it is possible to get off the internet every polling station's result. Um, that's not something that's easy to do in the United States or in Sweden for that matter. Like in a lot of ways, the Electoral Commission's transparency is above average for, you know, the world for developing countries. I do think the one area where people are messing around with the tallies is in these legislative elections. But I wouldn't want that to be mis like mistaken for a claim that like the legislative elections are broken and unfair and unfree. Um, it's just that is an arena where people are up to a bit more mischief. Thanks to Seth Soderborg, a PhD candidate in political science at Harvard University and author of Electoral Manipulation in Indonesia, from structured, systematic, and massive to sporadic, isolated, and minor, which will appear as a chapter in the forthcoming book, Electoral Manipulation in East and Southeast Asia. So thanks for listening, guys. And don't forget to check out our Twitter at IndoInDepth and also our website, indonesiaindepth.com if you have any feedbacks or comments you can email us at info at indonesiaindepth.com our executive producer is sean corrigan producer is tanita and editor is myself veronica and all additional research is made by me audrey thanks so much for listening guys